Good afternoon and welcome to the 176th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a memorial session to remember those who have been lost needlessly to the pandemic. We'll be talking with Pamela Addison, Rafe Offer, Cecile Sternberger, and Lori Peake. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also catch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. And you may have noticed that I tweeted this out, but I'm happy to report that uh, production assistant for COVID calls, Shivani Patel, who is an absolutely indispensable part of this production, as well as Bucky Stanton. Um, she has started inviting senators and members of Congress uh, for COVID calls for January and February. So back to you next week to let you know a little bit about how many have said yes. As of today, November 25th, 2020, there are 1,417,153 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 12,715,888 cases in the United States, up from 12,448,099 cases yesterday. And there are now in the United States a total of 261,480 deaths from COVID-19. That's up from 258,364 reported yesterday. Today is a memorial episode and a continuation of a set of discussions that we started on COVID calls on October 9th, when there were 213,390 deaths from COVID at that time, and a series of memorial sessions that will no doubt continue into next year. And I'd like to just make sure to invite folks, if you're interested in talking about the death of a loved one or a friend, or if you're interested in coming on COVID calls and sharing an obituary that's meaningful to you and explaining why, I'd be very eager to have you on. So please do get in touch with me on Twitter at US of Disaster or email me directly sgk23 at drexel.edu. I'd like to start today by sharing a life story that really moved me when I read it. The headline is Harrison Johnson, pastor at funeral in mass shooting, dies at 65. This is by Catherine Seeley, appeared in the New York Times October 23rd. After Antonio Bosco's wife was killed last year in a mass shooting at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, Mr. Bosco asked a funeral home to invite the public to her memorial service. She was his only family, and he didn't want to mourn alone. The funeral home and Bishop Harrison Johnson, a minister who also worked for it as a director, put out the word. This is about a community coming together to be there for him, to hold him up, Mr. Johnson said of Mr. Bosco in an interview with the New York Times in advance of the service. 
The response to the invitation on social media was so great that the service was moved to a larger venue, the La Paz Faith Memorial and Spiritual Center in El Paso. And on August the 16th, 2019, more than 3,000 people turned out, lining the streets and packing the pews to honor Margie Record, one of 23 people killed in the attack by a white man who was accused of targeting Hispanics. The gunman is awaiting trial. Viewers from around the world watched the service by live stream and 900 floral bouquets arrived from as far away as New Zealand. Look at all the friends you have now, Mr. Johnson told the widower in his eulogy to thunderous applause. Harrison said he felt very connected to this man and that he would be happy to preach Jorge A. Ortiz, general manager of the Purchase Funeral Homes, which employed Mr. Johnson, said in a phone interview, he was always on call, always available. Even if he didn't know the family, he was always there. Mr. Johnson died on October 15th at a hospital in El Paso. He was 65. His son, Deacon Terreno Johnson, said the cause was complications of the novel coronavirus. Mr. Johnson, a senior pastor at Praise Temple Full Gospel Baptist Church, was a funeral director, mortician, and embalmer for 40 years, the last five of which he spent at Perches. One of the business's six branches in El Paso has been converted into an operations center to manage the increased volume of work caused by the coronavirus. Its chapel is now a refrigeration unit that can hold up to 80 bodies. Harrison Bradley Johnson Jr. was born on September 22, 1955 in El Paso, the second oldest of 12 children. Praising the Lord was and remains the family business. His father, the Reverend Harrison Bradley Johnson and his mother, Stella Pearl Johnson were both in the ministry, as are most of his siblings and children. In addition to his son, Torino, Mr. Johnson is survived by his mother, his wife, Shalom, four other children, Arisha Younger, Crystal Johnson, Letitia Johnson White, and Donay Johnson, 12 grandchildren, two great grandchildren, and 10 siblings. A basketball star in his youth, Mr. Johnson was nicknamed Lightning. After a stint in the army, he earned multiple degrees in religious studies and developed a passion for gospel music. He served for 15 years as choir director of the Gospel Music Workshop of America, an annual assembly of interdenominational musicians. But his favorite activity was going to the movies. Every Sunday night, he and his wife and whoever else wanted to come along would go to the AMC El Paso 16 multiplex, his son Torino said. Mr. Johnson would head for the concession stand, order a tub of popcorn with extra butter and a large soda and settle in to watch whatever was playing. For a couple of hours at least, he could rest. Okay, we're gonna to turn to our uh, discussion today and I'd like to introduce my first guest, Pamela Addison. Hi. Hi, Pamela. Let me just say a little bit about you. Pamela is the widow of a brave healthcare worker who lost his life to COVID in late April. She's now a single mother to a two and a half year old daughter, Elsie, and a one year old son, Graham. Since her husband's death, she's tried to share her story because she doesn't want others to endure the pain and heartache her family has experienced. Recently, she started a Facebook group for young widows and widowers of COVID. She remembered how alone she felt after her husband died because at the time, she felt like she was the only young widow going through this kind of loss. And she realized that many others were in her shoes. She felt it was important to create a place for everyone to come together and support each other on this difficult journey of love, loss, and grief. 
The teacher in her wants to use her experience to help others and make a difference. Pamela, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you for having me. So let me first start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is looking there, where you are. So I'm in Waldwick, New Jersey, which is in Bergen County. And, you know, it's getting scary again. Um, numbers are increasing. You know, Governor Murphy has been doing press conferences about, you know, more closures or possible closures if thing, the numbers don't get better. So it's, I feel like it's trending back to where we were in March and April earlier this year. Yeah, I'm in New Jersey, too. I'm further south than you. And same thing here, you know, that time period of the spring in some ways feels so far away. And yet these recent numbers have brought it, have really brought it back. Yeah. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind starting out, just tell us your husband's story and then we'll talk a little bit about what it's been like for you these last few months. So my husband worked as a speech pathologist at St. Joseph's Medical Center in Patterson and also in Wayne. And so he did a lot of swallow evaluations for people who had difficulty swallowing due to strokes or cancers. And he would just assess them and see if they were able to, what kind of diet they should be on as far as food goes. So um, at the beginning of March, I mean, we were not prepared definitely as a nation and there was a lot of PPE that wasn't available. And um, he tried to get a mask, and when he went to get one, he had a fight to get one <laughs> type of thing, which mm -hmm. is just so heartbreaking that, you know, he worked in a hospital and he had a fight to get an N95 mask. He's in people's faces where people are breathing on him, and he had a fight to get a face mask. So he saw a possible COVID patient the, um, probably like a week before he started to feel symptoms. We had our daughter's second birthday on March 21st and then March 22nd, like my whole world changed. He started to have a cough and it just progressed. He tried to get tested, but he couldn't right away. By Wednesday, he had that high fever. He was more lethargic, not as hungry, trouble getting fluids down, but like forced himself to drink because he knew it was important. Burning up, needed ice packs, you know. And then on um, the morning of April 3rd, when I, I heard him gasping for air, I knocked on the door because he was isolating in our bedroom. And I was like, can you breathe? He couldn't even answer me. So I knew I had to call 911. They came, took him out of my house, and that was the last time I saw him. So then, you know, uh, he seemed to be doing okay. They told me that, you know, he had the pneumonia associated with COVID. He was on an oxygen mask, but he was doing well with that. Um, he could eat and be on the mask, which was like very positive feedback. And then by April 7th, they, I got the phone call that they had to intubate him. Um, and then uh, the next day I signed the papers so he could get the remdesivir. Mm -hmm. And then I was hoping that uh, that would help save his life. Um, it seemed to improve his stats. He started, they started to talk about excavating him and the day that they were going to do it he got a bacterial infection and his that infection caused him to go all the way back to when he was intubated and I feel like after that he could never like bounce back like he could the first time like he was weak 
um, they tried to excavate him again because, you know, at the time it's like the more, the longer you're on the mm -hmm. ventilator, the worse it can be. And that was always in the back of my mind. Oh, it's day 15, it's day 16. This is not good. Um, so on April 27th, they gave him a tracheotomy, hoping that that would help him um, get lean off it, make it easier for him because he just couldn't support his, uh, he couldn't support his oxygen. He, was he couldn't exhale the carbon monoxide. So then um, that didn't really progress like they thought it was. When I got the call from the doctor, they're like, yeah, he di it didn't turn out the way we thought it was going to when he was going to get off the vent. Um, so I FaceTimed him that night. Um, I was lucky enough to know somebody who was a nurse who was actually going into patient's room and holding the hands for the family. So while I talked to him, encouraging him to keep fighting, he's doing a great job and telling him I love him and I miss him. Um, he squeezed the person's hand, uh, the nurse's hand, even though he was so heavily sedated. But when I said, I love you, he did that. Um, and then two days later, I was on the phone with the PA who took amazing care of him. And he was like, tomorrow will be a better day. And then two hours later, I got the phone call that he went into cardiac arrest. And what it was day on. was that? April 29th. So he fought for a month. Yeah. He, he fought hard. He, you know, everything that they did, he, you know, seemed to like be doing the best he could, but it was just getting off that vent was the one challenge that mm -hmm. it never happened. And then I think his body was too weak and his heart just gave out. A lot of people have, you know, after a loved one has died from COVID-19, they've, they've had a sort of second struggle, which is you want to have a, a memorial. You want to let people talk about this extraordinary person. Were you able to do that? Pamela? Looks like we might have a, there we yeah, go. Sorry. Pamela, you still with us? That's uh, no problem. Um, looks like maybe the picture yeah, froze yeah. for just a second yeah. there. It yeah. was lagging. So. No, it's fine. I just wanted to ask you about the um, after his passing, were you able to have a memorial service or any, you know, it was so hard for people to to grieve because we can't be together. Were you able to do something? No, I didn't get to do it anything i at the time it was like hard for me because he yeah. impacted so many people so many people loved my husband and to only have like four people be able to you know do i i didn't think it was worth it for me at the time like i'm hoping in the future we can have a memorial to celebrate his life and everyone who loved him can be there so it was difficult. It was like difficult. I went back and forth with it, but I just didn't feel like it was even like risky at that time to like be with people. So I didn't want to like put anyone in danger. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about Martin. I mean, it's, it's, I've talked with a lot of people in, on COVID calls, many different walks of life. One group of people have not been talking with much are people like your husband. Um, care workers because they've been 
too busy. They're not, they don't have time, you know, to, to come on and, and talk. Um, it must have been a great passion of his, that work that he did. Tell us a little bit about, you know, his, how he got into that work and what he enjoyed about it. Um, so I guess he took one of those, what you should do kind of test and that popped up and he had remembered that his grandmother had had a stroke and I guess he saw her challenges after that stroke. And I guess when he saw that pop up that like inspired him to want to pursue that kind of career. And I mean, he was just, just amazing at it. Like he would tell me stories and I just kind of knew he was an amazing speech pathologist and he was great at what he did. Like I never saw him do anything, but I was like, he's, he's wonderful at what he does. And then um, he was very passionate. And one of the things he was really passionate about was like that, having those difficult conversations with families, because sometimes he would see people when they were at the end of life, that there was no positive, but he would always just know how to bring that news to, you know, his patients' families. And he was a mentor to not only his colleagues, but he also would take in students. And what they have said about him is just like they're the speech pathologists they are today because of him. They couldn't believe what kind of not only patient care he gave, but like just that connection that he always would make with families, even in the most difficult situations. So it just was something he was excelled at. And, you know, he was part of a team and he's deeply missed by his entire team. And like, you know, it's just not going to be the same without him there. So he really was just so passionate and just a great speech pathologist. What did he like to do when he wasn't working? So he loves guitars. So he has quite the collection. Ah, okay. He loved playing them. He, you know, dabbled with writing his own music. Um, I actually found some lyrics he had written about me in his phone but after really? he died. So I guess he was planning a song to write about me, which was really sweet. Um, yes. He also was a big Liverpool um, football club fan. That's like, so weekends when Liverpool was on, we were definitely watching the match. If it was on at a weird time, he would record it, shut all, all his notifications <laughs> of sports so he could see it live without knowing. He would tell me, oh, don't go on Facebook. I don't want you to find out, you know, those type of things. He told all his friends not to text him if he wasn't going to be watching it live. So that was very passionate. Like he was very passionate about that. Um, and then he loved being a papa. Yeah. Yeah. We had, he, he was, my daughter was such a daddy's girl. You know, she would wait for him by the door. And the minute, you know, he walked in, he would swoop her up, fly her around the house. If we were outside, he'd fly her around outside. He just, like he fit right into the papa role right away and he he just was incredible i mean he just loved spending time with his kids and he was he only spent four and a half months with my youngest but mm -hmm. those moments will be something that i will talk to my son about for the rest of his life so he knows how much his papa loves him just listening to you talk about your husband and i can totally i hear the sounds of a house you know with the music and the game and the children. And it just sounds like a place with a lot of love. Yeah. So. It was <laughs> just without in the, him. In the midst of, 
of this. You've done um, something incredibly brave, which is you are among a group. Now it's an unfortunately very large group of people in the United States who have taken your grief and you've been public with it. You've shared your story so that others can find uh, compassion, heart, maybe anger um, mm -hmm. in it and reality in it. And first of all, I just want to thank you for that. You're welcome. And, and acknowledge the bravery of that. This has been a tough political year, even for yeah. people who haven't lost loved ones. And to have people saying things that don't seem to take this virus seriously is very hurtful. And I'm sorry that you've had to go through that. And it sort of really underscores the bravery. You published a piece. Um, you've been active on Facebook. You've been active organizing. And you published a piece, which is, and I'll post it um, on Twitter as well. You wrote uh, in October, you said, my uh, healthy and heroic husband was only 44 years at the time of his death. For over a month, he fought hard trying to beat COVID-19 so he could come home to us. However, on April 29th, his long and courageous battle ended. As I think back to life during my husband's battle with COVID-19, I remember how scared I was throughout his illness and truthfully fear still exists for completely different reasons now. COVID-19 doesn't care who you are. My husband was both young and healthy and I saw how this virus viciously attacked his body. What has been the response to your testimony, to your witness? Well, um, when I posted it on some Facebook groups, a lot of people were like, could totally relate with what I said, who had went, gone through the same thing. They said like, that's basically what I could have written based on my experience. So that gave me like some, you know, not joy, but like, wow, there's other people who understand because it really is, COVID is such a different type of loss. You're like isolated, you can't be with the person you love. Like for 26 days, I was not with my husband. That's the longest we've ever been apart since we've met. Um, so I think that was a great response to get that there were others who could totally re relate to what I said. And just, you know, even his coworkers are so glad I'm getting it out there that it's so important, you know, and that people do need to hear this stuff because I feel like some people just don't understand the depths of what COVID can do to somebody and their family. Do you have a, a sense of why it's been hard for people to grasp this? Is it something about the the distance and the way people like your husband have died sort of so, you know, remote and removed? I, I'm struggling with this question myself. And I'm asking you because I really want to know your, your theory about this. I mean, this is a disaster almost unparalleled in American history. And we're having a very hard time talking about it. And some people are having a hard time believing it. Yeah, I think that I like ask myself every day because it's like, I know there is a lot of us who post things because people still think it's not truly real. And I don't understand how, it, like, or like you see the comments, oh, well, he must have had an underlying health condition. But it's like, no, he didn't. He was healthy. <laughs> what he wasn't, he wasn't in the higher age category. He was healthy and it killed him. It, it doesn't matter. Like, and then I hate that. That makes me feel so angry too, because it's like, why does it, my husband have to be unhealthy for him to have died? 
it's like very difficult. So I don't I don't know why people still think that this isn't as serious as it is. Maybe because they haven't known anyone and I feel like they're lucky to not know someone who's died of this because Martin's death did not just impact me. It impacted everyone he knew. I think that's uh, something about what you just said. I mean, so much, so everything you've said is important. And one thing I want to really underscore there too, is that it seemed like particularly back, especially in March and April, people were struggling for ways to make it less terrifying. And one of the things they resorted to was this idea, well, it, it will only kill, just like you say, it will only kill somebody with a pre-existing condition. It will only kill an older person. And I, I was struck by that, that, and I mean, it made me very angry, I think, when people talk that way. But it, at the same time, it made me feel like it's a kind of a denial. People just couldn't, it was so scary to them that they would just, they believed those things because they didn't want to actually believe that it could affect children or that it could mm -hmm. affect someone who was very healthy and in the prime of their life, like your husband. Right. But it can, and people need to realize that and be safe because you, you really don't, I, I like I harp on this on Twitter and Facebook, you really don't want to know the pain of losing someone to COVID. Well, let me ask you another question. There's been um, a lot of, I've talked with Kristen Arquiza, for example, who's the founder of Marked by COVID. I've had several discussions on COVID calls with people who are making memorial projects, not waiting around for this disaster to end to get, to get going on memorials. I, I sort of wonder, what you think about that as a person who is already speaking with power, tremendous moral authority in this moment, what well, kind of, what should, I'm just, go ahead, go ahead. No, what were you going to ask? I was just going to ask what, what you would like to see us do as a, as a country, maybe as a people around the world to remember this moment and what kind of, and, and how we can turn that into action. Because I think people are looking, I'm looking to you, and others who've really experienced this to tell us. Well, I it was nice when you know things were starting to get done for people, um, but I think there just needs to be like a bigger scale because so many people have lost their lives, and a lot of the times we're like talk about numbers, but our family member was more than just a number. So there needs to be some sort of huge memorial somewhere. You know, or maybe do it like by state. I don't know. There needs to be something where my kids can go to one day and see their papa's name and know that he was he he was a part of history. He was a part of history, and that they're learning that in school. They can be like, you know, my papa was one of the victims. I feel like something needs to be done because we are all they are all victims, and when other tragedies happen there are memorials for those victims and there just really needs to be like something that my kids can go and see that his name is among so many others. I think that's very well said and is absolutely important. I think also your husband has a special role here because he was a lifesaver. So his loss in this hits us all doubly hard. I mean, he was one of those people that we all rely upon to to bail us out, help us out right. in times like this. Right, and the speech pathologists, I don't think they get enough credit because the people who have been getting off the ventilators and surviving, 
they need a speech therapist to help them relearn how to swallow and do all the, they're going to get evaluated right away when that, when he, they're extubated by a speech pathologist. So they're like key in this. And, you know, I, when, when my, when I was told that he was going to need to, you know, get a tracheotomy and when he was intubated, I was like, he's becoming the patients that he used to treat. So. Well, I think we're probably um, wrap up and, and start to bring out some of our other guests today. It's been an honor to talk with you and to Thanksgiving is tomorrow. Holidays are coming up. Yeah. Uh, you have, I'm sure, a very busy house right now. Your yeah. duties as a parent are <laughs> extraordinary and you have a, 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 an infant at home too. I mm -hmm. hope you're getting some support and help. Yeah, I am. My mom and family have been really great as has Martin's mom. Well, a shout out to all of the families that are pulling together like a net at this time and holding people together and holding them up. Thanks, Pamela Addison, for coming on COVID Calls today for this memorial episode. It's more meaningful than you can, than you can imagine. I really appreciate your time and your honesty. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure being here. I hope we'll keep in touch. Thanks. There's Rafe Offer. Good evening, Scott. How are you? This is the second time in a month that I've asked you to stay up late and come on COVID calls. And I really appreciate you doing it. And uh, we're just talking just now with Pamela Addison about her husband and uh, tremendous uh, story she was telling about, about him and, and the incredible person he was. Uh, and. Thank you for coming on. I'm gonna just introduce you for those who didn't hear our earlier discussion on COVID calls. Uh, Rafe offers held senior positions with some of the world's largest companies, including as a marketing director for Disney. He continues to consult top companies, including Microsoft, Aviva, the Daily, Daily Mail Group and Amazon. He's also the CEO and co-founder of So Far Sounds, a cutting edge music company and worldwide promoter of new bands. It's grown from one London living room into a global music phenomenon, which has created the world's largest international network of live music events and has been touted by The Guardian as a quiet revolution and New York Magazine as one of the top new brands in America. And we had a great discussion. I've been th I've thought a lot about that talk we had. Um, and so I was eager to talk to you, talk to you again. And a lot of people listened to that episode and reacted to it. So thanks again for joining me previously. And um, so you're going to share some uh, obituaries with us today, and we'll talk about those a little bit. So I'm going to take myself out of the screen, Rafe. I'm going to turn it over yeah. to you, okay? Okay. Uh, should okay. we read them both, Scott? Just one one after the next? Yeah, I think so, if that's okay with you, and then we'll chat a minute. And I'll, um, I'll bring myself back in a minute, okay? Okay. Promise. Hi. Well, I did catch the end of... Uh, the interview with Pamela and I'm extremely moved. And so uh, it's, it's hard to, to move on after that profound interview, but I am going to read two obituaries about two musicians 
my business is music. Many of my best friends are musicians and that's who I know. And to, to hear about um, untimely deaths, which we're all hearing about is, is, is a challenge. So let's come to life. Well, let's bring them to life and come to their lives. So first I'm gonna to head to Detroit to read about DJ Mike Huckabee, who has written about in the Detroit Free Press on April 25th, had a soulful studied work that made him one of the prominent early figures in the Detroit techno and house music scene, passing away on the 24th after a long time in hospital following stroke. He was 54. Huckabee, who died in Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, also tested positive for COVID-19 while there, said his brother, Craig. Mike suffered a mild stroke March 6th and was admitted to Beaumont the next day, his brother said. After initially seeming to improve, he developed a cold and sweats when his condition declined further while he was rehabilitating. Huckabee was then readmitted where he was put on a ventilator and the signs of COVID-19 were there and confirmed before his untimely death. Huckabee was a long beloved figure in the Detroit scene. The graduate from Cooley High School, he landed his first gig in 1988 from a Detroit fashion designer and party promoter. He was a fixture at spots around the Motor City, such as the Motor Lounge, St. Andrew's Hall and the Majestic Cafe where he held residencies and began to tour the US and around the globe. With a musician's ear and a scholar's sensibility, Huckabee adventurously and diligently bridged the emotive sounds of house music with the precision of techno. He was avant-garde, a jazz fan with an interest in philosophy. What a mix. Fascinated by the relationship of music and math. I committed myself to days and years of practice, Huckabee told the Detroit Free Press. In 2003, I started with ghetto tech pioneer Gary Chandler, practiced religiously every day. We didn't stop until we could handle an all-night party. Beyond his live work, remixes, and on-air radio sets, he was best known as manager of a dance music department at Record Time, where I've been, the Roseville shop that became internationally acclaimed destination for techno heads and vinyl connoisseurs. As the store's lead buyer, he selected the records and beats that filled the racks, becoming an influential tastemaker for dance music around the globe. What a pioneer. He'd pull out a record and you trusted it, said Adrian Thornton, a longtime Detroit artist and promoter. His impact on our music was unparalleled. He was the selector. Huckabee was a staple of Detroit's Memorial Day weekend techno fest, which began as the Detroit Electronic Music Festival, or DEMF for short, and takes place still today as movement. For the DEMF's third edition in 2002, it was part of an advisory board compromising several top-line Detroit DJs. If Mike said you should really consider a certain artist, I never doubted it. Again, Zen Thornton, there was no second guessing. While old school vinyl mixing remained his bread and butter, 
Huckabee embraced the emergent digital technology that became a cornerstone of the DJ craft. Ended up teaching at the Red Bull Music Academy, Youthville, and other places. He's survived by his mother, Essie, and his brother, Craig. Let's go from Detroit to Dallas. Another pioneer, Trini Lopez. This was published in the New York Times on August 11th of this year. Trini Lopez, and for those of you listening, I know you'll know some of his songs, had worldwide hit records in the early 60s by creating a unique mix of American folk, Latin, and rockabilly. He died in a hospital in Rancho Mirage, California. He was 83. His longtime friend and collaborator, Joe Chavira, said the cause was complications of COVID-19. His two biggest records, If I Had a Hammer and Lemon Tree, had both been hits as well for the folk trio Peter, Paul, and Mary. But Mr. Lopez's own version soared even higher on Billboard's Top 100 chart. His version of If I Had a Hammer shot to number one in 36 countries and sold more than a million copies. His stylistic advantage, what he put together, you could dance to. His interpretations bridged two prominent trends, a commercially rich time for folk music. He drew on the beauty of the genre's tunes while souping them up with rockabilly beats, the likes of what you might hear from Buddy Holly or Carl Perkins. Making songs danceable helped me a lot, Mr. Lopez told the classic rock music reporter in 2014, adding discotheques back in the day were not my only playing my songs, they were playing my albums all the way through. For yet another draw, Mr. Lopez punctuated many of his songs with joyous hoots and trills drawn from Mexican folk, emphasizing his ethnic heritage at a time when many Latin performers kept theirs hidden. I'm proud to be Mexican, he told the Seattle Times a number of years ago, and his groundbreaking mix of sounds connected with listeners from the start. Not only a singer, Mr. Lopez was an accomplished guitar player as well, helping Gibson Guitar Corporation to invite him to design two instruments, both of which became collectibles. His father was born a manual laborer in Mexico, and Trini was born in 1937, just when they moved over to Dallas. The family lived in a very poor area of Dallas known as Little Mexico, where Trini attended elementary school. When he was 11, his father bought him a $12 guitar from a pawn shop and taught him to play. That was the biggest reward of my life, he said. To help support his family, Mr. Lopez dropped out of high school and began to play music. Slowly but surely, he got a following in Dallas. He later attributed his drive to succeed in part because of the prejudice he had endured growing up. My problem was always being, being a Mexican in America. His pivotal break came after he landed a gig with the trio at PJ's, a hangout for people like Frank Sinatra and Steve McQueen. After catching his show several times, Sinatra sent a key producer named Don Costa backstage and signed him. Inspired by the energy of the shows, Mr. Costa had the notion to make Mr. Lopez's first album a live work. And that was the beginning of a great 
collaboration. Eventually, Mr. Lopez found his way into TV in 1969, starring in a variety show for NBC, using the surf rock group The Ventures as his backing band. He continued to record albums well into the 2000s and kept working and paying back Sinatra for the early break that he gave him long ago. He never married. I've always been a loner, he said. Complete information on survivors was not immediately available. For all his successes as an international highliner, he would look headliner, he would later look back with pride at one gig in which he shared the bill with the Beatles at the venerable Olympic Theater in Paris. It was just before the Beatles' American debut in 1964, said Trini. I used to steal the show from the Beatles every night. The French newspapers would say, bravo, Trini. Who were the Beatles? You're a music fan, aren't you, Rafe? I don't think there's a, a day or maybe even an hour that goes by without something on. And uh, if anyone caught it, there was a slight noise when I was reading the obituary, there's an Amazon device in this room. It heard me say a song name and it was about to play it. It was about to play a Trini Lopez song? Yes. That's fantastic. Um, I was thinking as you were reading, thank you for reading. And, um, you know, lives lost too soon and, uh, you know, they both had such a tremendous impact in their communities. And one of the things that really came across for me in, in listening to you tell them both of those life stories is that they were really people who saw connections. They, they brought them out musically, but they, they were really kind of, masters at drawing from many different strands and creating something new out of genres, which sometimes seem very fixed. Yeah, so many musicians are doing the same old, same old, and they might be great at it, but it's the real pioneers that I think we remember that endure, that as you said, are able to dance in different places, bring those sounds together and make something different. And that risk sometimes falls short of commercial success, but sometimes it's magic. And that gets me going. And I, I, I felt the same thing from both those two legends. I had a Trini Lopez guitar. Get out of here. I did. It's incredible. Uh, and and like, like so many things in life, I can, actually can't tell you at some point, I can't remember if I gave it to a friend or if I traded it to a friend, but somewhere along in the late 1990s, I had that thing for a while. I guess instruments are kind of like that. Like they have their own life and you kind of have them for a little while and you pass them on to the next person. But it was a killer guitar. It was a great guitar. And I grew up in Dallas. I mean, I was born in Dallas and I grew up in Arlington. Oh. So he was, you know, part, everybody knew him there. I knew who he was there. I did not know that. I, I just felt like I was in Dallas for a little while listening to his story and how he worked himself from you know obscurity, um, which must, must have been tough. And that resonated with what's been going on this year uh, with George Floyd and so many other things that you know he was uh, inspired by his differences and tried to cut through that. I found that was really something. 
I was thinking about your guitar, you know, my mom threw away a bunch of my baseball cards. You know, maybe maybe somebody's mom, you know, is always involved in, ah, we don't need this anymore. What's yeah, this? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, um, I guess I want to just uh, give you a chance also, Rafe, if you wanted to share anything at this time. You spend so much time with artists, um, with musicians, making it possible for them to perform at this time. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we read about two untimely deaths, and this has been horrible for the musicians and their families who have passed, but, and I should say, it's been horrible for so many musicians who feel like a part of them has died. Just not to be able to play, and I'll get to, you know, live streaming and, and virtual shows, but not to be able to play in front of an audience is like a bit of a death and you might create, but you're creating to share and you get your life blood as a musician from that sharing and from that response. And you can even try out your new stuff. I was just speaking to a friend who's a musician who's written 15 songs and he just played them actually in New York City to a socially distanced audience, but he felt alive again. Mm -hmm. First time playing live since you know when. So. I find that there have been lots of tiny little deaths for, for these people. And hopefully because many of them have had to pivot and they're not making money, they'll find a way through the business I'm involved with so far sounds like so many others have been doing live streaming. We do them every night. We encourage people from around the world to donate so that there's some money in their pocket, but equally it gives them a chance to perform. They don't get the magic of being there live that we've right. all felt. But they have said there are some advantages where you're you're able to communicate like we all do with the chat bar and actually kind of have a feeling that you're speaking to 100 people at once or however many are listening. So there are some advantages, but we're all excited with the vaccine hopefully coming soon to get back into it and see the time when music is heard again and felt, you know, right here and in a sweaty room, right? You know, we were all right. there together. Yeah. It's it's also, um, you know, I was thinking we're talking with Pamela and about her husband, uh, who's a care provider. And so, mm. I mean, loss of any person at this time is is just crushing. At this, And there's also people who we really need at this time. We need caregivers and we also need artists at this time. At, well, I'll speak for myself. I need artists at this time. Mm. I need people to help me understand what the hell is happening. And particularly musicians, so that hits hard when people like, you know, Mike Huckabee or or Trini Lopez are gone, and others, many other musicians who've died at this time, because we kind of turn to them, right, to like soothe us, make us feel better, and explain things. There will be that explosion of that explanation because there have been a lot of musicians who have had a lot of time. You know, they're working some sort of job or they're living with their parents if they're quite young or whatever. They've had some time to write. And so uh, they're kind of come out with dozens of songs. So we're going to be hit with that. But you're right. In this period right now, we're not feeling like we're getting uh, that compass. Uh, I can't wait. And I feel a little like you, Scott. I feel lost that piece and maybe like you too i'm going back 20 30 40 years 
to these enduring classics, a lot of R&B, that is an instant boost, an instant mood changer. Well, Rafe, thanks for making time uh, mm. late at night for you. You're in the UK. And yeah. uh, I'm assuming as an expatriate, you do still, you'll cook some sort of food tomorrow and celebrate with family, I hope. Yes, we're in lockdown, so there will only be a handful of us who are already in the house, but we will eat for an army. We will have leftovers for days, Good. and Thanksgiving will be in the UK. No matter what, it'll be here. Take care, my friend. Good to see you. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Good you to bet. See you. see you soon, I hope. Great to talk to Rafe Offer, and um, you can check out my earlier talk with him on COVID calls. I'll post the link to that after the discussion today. I want to introduce my next guest, dear friend of mine, Cecile Sterenberger. Cecile is a historian of science at the University of Wuppertal in Germany. Her research interests include disaster, colonialism, the Franco dictatorship in Spain, and gender studies. She's currently working on projects on the history of social science disaster research, the history of toxic waste dumping in West Africa, and the nuclear incident in the Spanish town of Palomares in 1966. She's also an activist involved in a public history project to decolonize the city of Erfurt in Germany. Cecile, great to see you. And just like Rafe, you've stayed up late to be with us today. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me. Thank you, Ray, for these powerful stories you shared. And most of all, many thanks to you, Pamela, for being here, for being so brave today. And all these other days, you are inspiring and wonderful. Let me ask you just a bit about, um, you know, you're calling in from Wuppertal tonight. Is that right? That is correct. Wuppertal is a middle-sized city in the state of North Rhine-Westphalia, the most populous one in um, Germany, and the COVID-19 situation is not good here. We have been seeing an exponential um, growth in registered infection cases. It has been slowed down a little, but numbers are still very high. And today, for instance, overall in Germany, we had a record of 410 people death of COVID-19. And still, every weekend, we have hundreds of COVID-19 deniers marching the streets, comparing themselves to the victims and resistant fighters against the Nazi regime and committing acts of uh, physical and verbal violence. I have enough trouble understanding that here in the United States. And, and I guess we don't want to take too much time away from our core focus today, but I wonder if you would, as an analyst of, of disaster in society, can you explain to us a little bit about where that comes from in Germany? Do people feel empowered to make the kind of claims you were just talking about? Scott. Well, um, I think there are parallels to where this is coming from in Germany and where it is coming from in the United States and in 
both cases, it really is among um, many reasons. There is years of um, politics of disinformation, of consciously and actively produced ignorance that have left a deep mistrust towards and even rejection towards knowledge that is seen as coming from the establishment. And um, this type of disinformation politics is one that um, is coming from the far right, but that has been supported over the years by um, political parties that also have traditionally been a little more in the center. And um, I also would like to say that um, what is probably very shocking about what is happening in the streets in Germany in these protests, meaning the display of anti-Semitism, the relativization of the Holocaust, this as well is something that has been going on for a number of years and is part of a politics that has been uh, managing to occupy seats in parliament and has many people voting for it. Well, um, I think we're gonna have to have you back for a longer discussion to talk about this comparison between the United States and Germany as this, as this goes on. Um, I, you have written something to share mm -hmm. with us today. I'm going to uh, give you the screen and, and let you read, and then I'll come back on in a few minutes and we'll talk about it, okay? Many thanks. These are a few lines to the unknown COVID-19 fighter. Loft lost her life fighting the COVID-19 pandemic without his death being registered as COVID-19 related. Loft is most likely not the name appearing in her passport. Most likely he did not have a valid passport. But we need to say his name and without a doubt she was loved by some being human or non-human. He must have been, he must be, she must become. Loft possibly died from complications of COVID-19 without there ever having been a test documenting that she was infected. I would not be surprised to learn that she had been living in Ciudad Deus, a Scandinavian nursing home, sleeping rough in a central European city, being an undocumented immigrant, a prisoner in the United States, elderly, black, Maya, Dime, Dalit. It is likely that she caught the coronavirus while working outside of home so others could stay at home, or that she was living in a home that was a danger to her life. Maybe Loft was killed by her boyfriend with whom she was confined in that home. Or he died of cancer that was not treated because of COVID-19, making doctors' visits very difficult. Maybe Loft was one of the thousands of children who have died from COVID-19-linked hunger since the pandemic began. Loft died fighting 
COVID-19, her organs and her mind trying to keep going. He passed away helping others not catching the virus or healing. She was killed trying to resist the causes of the COVID-19 disaster. Speaking up against corrupt, greedy governments, corporations and systems of oppression that create the environmental destruction and the poverty and the racisms that have been the conditions of possibility for this catastrophe. Speaking up against them, fleeing from them, and being murdered on the way, left to drown in the Mediterranean Sea to die from thirst near the Mexican border. The same forces that made Loft vulnerable to catching the coronavirus have made her vulnerable to being unknown as a COVID-19 fighter, to suffer epistemic violence on top of physical one. The forces that valued Loft's life as less, as less important than the economy or our borders, ours. The immeasurable injustice and cruelty of this fact cannot be undone, but it can be stopped from continuing. You will be remembered, loved. In lieu of sending flowers, vote for a government that stops deforestation, that stops being complicit in the murdering of loved. Thank you for reading that. Thank you for writing that. Tell us about the how the idea came to you to write an obituary in, in this way. I've spent so much time with obituaries in these last months. And, and yours, it's different. It's, you're bringing together so many different things into this, into this one story. What gave you the idea to write it? Well, first of all, let me say thank you to you for reading these obituaries and for everyone who is listening, who has written one and who is trying to read them and share them. Um, because I think that the way in which we commemorate the lives lost to violence is very crucial when it comes to how this violence will continue to exist or if and how it can be stopped. And I think that um, giving humanity to the numbers, as you always put it, is very crucial in this pandemic precisely because the economization of life that is generally a characteristic of neoliberal regimes has converted decisions over life and death in a decision that was taken based on cost-benefit analysis of precisely such numbers. Mm. So um, I think the work of reading and listening to these obituaries is so important precisely in this case. Yet um, I was wondering what about the people who we do not know as COVID-19 related 
deaths who have not been registered as such or not registered at all. And um, I wonder why that is the case and whether there is a connection between their remaining unknown and unnamed to us and their having died from COVID-19 related issues. And um, I think there is a connection and it consists in forces that convert their lives into disposable lives, um, disposable lives of people who are constructed as others, racialized others who are um, perceived as vida chatarra, as in Latin America it is said, and who have historically and still in present times precisely been denied humanity. And I think behind this, there are thought patterns and belief systems that need to change in order to also not only symbolic, but material forms of justice occurring with respect to the pandemic and the other chronic and slow disasters that are connected to it. And I think in order for these changes at the level of thought patterns occurring, um, there needs to be new forms of radical empathy, empathy to those that are not known by name to us, who happen in their suffering to be at the periphery of our perception and um, who we do not usually feel close to. And I also would like to emphasize that um, expanding suffering towards them does not mean taking, um, expanding empathy to them does not mean taking away empathy towards those that we are related to, for an instance. And I think it's, it's a point to start. There's, there's so much in what you've just said. I want to, I just want to pick up a couple of parts of it for a second. Um, and, and because also in the, in your obituary, um, to the unknown COVID fighter, there's, uh, there's references in there to violence around the world and particularly, I mean, the migrant crisis comes through in there mm -hmm. and and this, this idea that, um, I don't know how to quite put it in words. I mean, what we've been struggling with, with, with COVID-19, and this is, we've already been talking about this today, there's the numbers. And the numbers seem to have some authority to them, always in our society, we treat them with authority. And then many of us have been trying, um, everybody in this call today, to, to talk about people and people's lives. But even that with COVID-19 is a huge struggle because of all of the lives that are, so we could talk about people who've died, but there will be many people who've suffered as part of those deaths. We may not know about them. We won't know about the mental health impacts. There's some pretty 
important research being done right now just about the multiplier and i even hate using this term they use economics terms but a multiplier effect like an emotional multiplier effect well, let's just call it the impact of a person's life it's tremendous and it's hard to calculate and it's unknown and then there's the dimension of time and i had the chance to interview recently john feel who's an activist for september 11 uh victims who have who suffered because they worked on the pile and they they had some manner or another of of uh, lung injury and many of them have been dying in COVID 19. So they sustained this injury in 2001 and then almost 20 years later. And he's one of the people who's trying to draw that connection and say, don't over this 20 years, it's not very long. Don't write them out of this, of this story. So that when I listened to you read, I mean, it's so profound. It made me think of all these different ways that I guess we, we somehow often want to package disaster very neatly and be able to point to it and say what it is. And your obituary doesn't allow me to do that, doesn't allow us to do that. Yes, that is correct, Scott. I do think that um, it would be wrong to view the COVID-19 pandemic as a one single disastrous event. I'd rather say it is a process um, whose end we are very, very far away from seeing because it will um, go on for decades in um, what it will cause in terms of suffering, of loss, of destructive consequences. But maybe, and this is a hopeful note, also in terms mm -hmm. of potential um, political potential in a positive way that it can imply. Um, but then also what is difficult to really say is when exactly the beginning was. And, um, you know, you had Andy Horowitz in here saying that maybe it's not the moment we register the first case. Maybe it's in the case of the US, the election of Donald Trump, that is the beginning of disasters. In any ways, if we um, view what is occurring and what will be occurring as something as a cascading um, disaster process, then maybe what we need is a type of remembrance culture that um, takes that into account, that is um, not only multi-directional, uh, that's um, a term that, that is, you're familiar with it, I guess, um, often used when it comes to thinking about the connectedness of remembering um, colonialism and the Nazi regime's victims together. So it maybe also needs to be, um, multi-layered in terms of time and it definitely needs to be ongoing this um, process of remembrance because i believe that the attempts that we have heard of um, in these past few months of creating a memorial now for covid19 sufferers many of them 
wonderful, wonderful projects. But there have also been some calls to do that now that to me seemed too much like even attempts of creating closure when there is right, absolutely right. none right. to be seen on the horizon. Um, one more thing I want to ask you about, uh, and was also commented on um, it, it just what you were talking about, is this term radical empathy. Um, there are two words that I like separately, and somehow I even like them better when they're together. Can you tell us what does a radical empathy approach to COVID-19 look like? Well, I think um, radical in the sense that it is um, radically inclusive. Inclusive in the way that I tried to um, formulate earlier of not just um, going towards those that we have been taught over centuries to have the most empathy for those that we are related to by kinship, right? But to expand it to other people as well. But then also um, inclusive in the sense that it um, goes to people who are suffering from COVID without probably there being this straightforward way of connecting it to the um, disease itself, you know, like the people, for instance, dying of hunger. But then also radical um, in the sense of what it um, implies and what it could and should lead to, and not just a moment of effect, but also action. And action of um, political choices on an individual level, on a collective level, and with it um, redistribution and reparation. Well, um, I have a feeling that this this is an idea you're working on and writing about, um, and it's something that you're, uh, I know you're not working alone on linking these different disasters together so that we don't isolate them. And that empathy, I think it's, it's one thing you said just now, it struck me really, is that it not only, it can be, first of all, it can go beyond your family and your friends and people you know. I think we've seen that with COVID. But that also it can go backward in time and forward in time. Empathy doesn't just have to be about people that you know right here in the now. Uh, it can be about expressing empathy for people who've died in the past, but also those who will come. Uh, those concepts are a little, I mean, just to talk with you about them, they're, so, they're a little jarring because it's honestly not the way we usually think. Um, yes. I mean, I believe that the empathy with those who come has been centered to environmental justice politics um, for the past few decades. And I think um, it is important 
to link these struggles to how we deal with the COVID-19 pandemic precisely also because we can learn so much from them in this respect, besides the fact that um, COVID-19 and environmental injustice are so strongly interlinked. Well, Cecile, thank you so much uh, for staying up late, for sharing this remarkable obituary that you've written with us. And I hope we'll get you back on COVID calls for a longer talk. And I should have said at the outset, um, hello to all of your family from my family. And Say please stay healthy. We'll thank see you, you so much. It's good to be with you. It's Lori Peak. Hi, Scott. How are you? Doing well, Lori. Oh. Thank you. And we're um, going to close out today's memorial session um, hearing from you. I just want to take a moment to introduce Lori Peak because um, if you've been listening to COVID calls, you've um, you've heard her on the program twice. But let me introduce her for those who are joining us for the first time today. Lori is a professor in the Department of Sociology and the director of the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. She studies vulnerable populations in disaster, and she's the author of lots of great books, including Behind the Backlash, Muslim Americans After 9-11. She's also the co-editor of Displaced, Life in the Katrina Diaspora, and co-author of Children of Katrina. Behind the Backlash received the Distinguished Book Award from the Midwest Sociological Society and the Best Book Award from the American Sociological Association section on altruism, morality, and social solidarity. I should also mention that Lori is the principal investigator for the National Science Foundation funded Converge facility, which is dedicated to improving research coordination and advancing the ethical conduct and scientific rigor of disaster research. She is uh, incredibly busy all the time and has uh, made some time to join us today. So Lori, it's great to see you. So good to see you and Scott. This episode, the, all of the memorial episodes, just it's been so powerful. So thank you for doing this and thank you for inviting me. So I'm going to clear out of the way. Well, I, I should ask first, um, you're, in, you're in Boulder? Yes. How are things out there? Surging here like everywhere else. So we have about 10,000 cases here in Boulder County. Uh, I think our death toll is at 117. And um, so we're now, Colorado actually added another color to our scale system. So we are in red. There's one more level they added, which is now called purple, which purple would move us back to the stay at home orders. Mm. So we're not quite there yet, but um, if the caseloads continue to rise, I'm, I'm not sure if we will escalate to purple, but we are in red. And you've been, the whole center has been remote throughout? Absolutely. And we, from March, when the university went remote, we went remote. And we have said from that day that we can do our work from anywhere. And it is our responsibility as long as we can stay home and stay away so that vital personnel who do need to be on the campus can be there. So we have 
continued the work of the Natural Hazard Center from our, our homes. And we we're all very fortunate to have houses and internet and computers to work from and to be connected. It is remarkable because this, this at a time like this, if it was an earthquake or uh, any number, any kind of disaster, ordinarily there'd be uh, armies and teams of researchers out in the field um, and you're somehow coordinating them they're in the field. They're out in the field from inside, which is um, uh, something we talked about a little bit earlier when you were on. Uh, I want to acknowledge also that you were on an episode with Alice Fothergill, and we talked a little bit about um, children and disaster and the pandemic and un ongoing research about that. So I might get a chance to ask you about that in a minute. I'm going to clear out and, and let you read now, okay? okay. Thank you, Scott. Okay, so uh, the obituary that I'm going to read today is part of a series in the New York Times, which is called Those We've Lost, which is about people who have died in the coronavirus pandemic. And this obituary was written by Glenn Rifkin, and the title is Elvia Ramirez Dies at 17, Youngest COVID-19 Victim in North Dakota. When she died of COVID-19 on October 6th, Elvia Ramirez was only 17 and had started her senior year at Partial High School on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation in North Dakota. She had intended to marry her long-term boyfriend and had hopes of attending college. She had promised to take some of her younger siblings to Disneyland one day. Instead, she became the youngest person in the state to die of the virus which has hit Native American populations particularly hard. According to her mother, Susan Three Irons, Elvia started to experience headaches in mid-September and stayed home from school. Her boyfriend had the same symptom, so Ms. Three Irons suggested that they go to a drive-through clinic in Partial. Both tested positive for COVID and soon Elvia had a fever. Her boyfriend recovered. On September 22nd, when her daughter began to have difficulty breathing, Ms. Three Irons called an ambulance. Elvia was taken to a hospital in nearby Monat, in nearby Minot, but the facility was ill-equipped to handle serious COVID cases. The hospital was so short-staffed that Ms. Three Irons had to take on much of her daughter's care, but the hospital eventually insisted that she could no longer be in the room. She called Elvia on the phone. I told her I loved her, Miss Three Irons said in an interview, and she told me she was scared. As her daughter's condition worsened, Miss Three Irons arranged to have Elvia airlifted to Sanford Children's Hospital in Fargo, 270 miles away. By the time Elvia arrived, her condition had deteriorated further and her breathing grew more labored. She was placed on a ventilator and never regained consciousness. Ms. Three Irons began to experience symptoms herself and tested positive for the virus. She was admitted to the COVID wing of another Fargo hospital. On October 6th, Elvia's nurse arranged a video call so that Ms. Three Irons could see her daughter. At some point during the call, the camera was turned toward the floor and because there was no audio, Ms. Three Irons didn't know that her daughter had gone into cardiac arrest and that the doctors were performing CPR to try to save her. 
After she died, the doctor held the phone to Elvia's ear so her mother, weeping, could say goodbye. Elvia Rose Ramirez was born on February 3rd, 2003 in Grand Forks, North Dakota, the third of nine children. Her family was part of the Mandan, Hidatsa, Arakara nation. Her father, Elias Ramirez, grew up as a member of the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian, uh, Indian community in Phoenix. Elvia, who was extremely proud of her heritage, became a member of that tribe. She struggled with asthma and high blood pressure, but was a vivacious, active teenager who loved drawing anime characters and had dreams of becoming an artist and a cat mom. Always a curious, empathetic child, she helped raise her younger siblings, her mother said. Quote, she always thought of everybody else first, Ms. Three Irons said. She was always there to cheer up her friends and volunteered to help out when people needed her. Tell us a little bit about um, why Elvia's story matters to you, Lori. Um, well, first, Scott, I want to say that uh, you really, the last time when Alice and I were on the show, you read an obituary that actually uh, featured a child as well, and it deeply moved me, and um, and it made me wonder. It made me wonder about um, other children's obituaries that might be available that we might be able to read and we might be able to learn from their lives and honor their, their short lives. And I actually have an undergraduate research assistant at the Natural Hazard Center, Helen Gardner, who's working with me to find obituaries of children. And as we talked about before the show, it's actually been quite hard, we think probably for privacy reasons and also because thankfully in the death toll, children actually make up a very small percentage of those who have perished due to COVID-19, although hundreds of thousands of children have fallen ill. And so I chose this uh, obituary of Elvia in particular because I, I found her story so moving. Um, even in this short obituary, just I could feel her life, her mother's love for her, her love for her siblings. Um, so I chose it. I chose it for that reason, but I also chose it because Elvia, as the obituary stated, is Native American. And although um, children do make up a small percent of those who have perished due to the coronavirus pandemic, racial and ethnic minority children, and specifically Hispanic, Black, and Native American children make up a disproportionate caseload. And in fact, a, a CDC paper that was published in September of this year showed that um, some over 75% of the children who have died due to COVID actually are racial and ethnic minorities. And so I really, I really wanted to highlight Elvia's story for that reason as well. Do you have an explanation for that? Why the children who are in these minority communities have been suffering at, at higher rates? Absolutely. And as with any good question, there are many answers to that and complex questions. And so 
some of the explanations that uh, CDC researchers have offered for this, as well as others who are looking at just health disparities more generally, but with children specifically in mind, have to do with one, that we know that uh, racial and ethnic minority children are much more likely to have parents who are part of the essential workforce mm. who have been not been able to stay at home and shelter in place. So they're more likely to be exposed through their parents needing to go out of the household to work. We also know that millions of children over the past four years have lost health insurance in this country and low-income and racial and ethnic minority children are much more likely to be underinsured or uninsured. They're much more likely to live in low-income or under-resourced communities that are less likely to have access to high-quality health care. Um, and so the list goes on and on and on related to this. But I think to understand why racial and ethnic minority children, as well as racial and ethnic minorities more generally, are perishing at disproportionate rates, we really do need to use that broader social determinants frame. So we're not just looking at the individual and their pre-existing conditions, although of course that matters too, but we're also looking at that broader social context. I wanted to ask you um, just a little bit about, it's been a theme throughout the day and Pamela started us with this, the importance of telling the, the individual story in the midst of all of this. And there's a tension there in science and in, and in social science too, that we're, I think we're at great pains to move quickly and we're at great pains because people are waiting for explanations. Um, they're waiting for medicine. But at the same time, this that tension comes because it, you move quickly past the individual stories like the one you just read. I'm always searching for the balance in there and I haven't found it. And I, I wanted to just get your sense of that as well, how you do this kind of research that you do, trying to learn bigger lessons and inform policy, but not lose the story, stories like Elvia's story. Well, and Scott, you're giving us a story or many stories every single day, thanks to this COVID calls. And so I, I always think about too, how these individual stories, how they accumulate into something larger where eventually we can see the patterns. And so sometimes we start with those individual stories and we look for patterns. Other times we start with the data and the, or the quantitative data, the numbers, and we wanna go backwards for the stories to help to illuminate why those statistics are there. And so I think as with all good things in life, rather than either or, it's both and. And so I always try to think about how can we couple the statistics with the story. And that's something that I love that you've been doing since the early days of COVID calls of using those statistics, but coupling them with the stories. And, and in fact, research shows us that that is the best way to do this because people can only remember so many numbers before they do become that gray statistical blur that we've talked about. And so it's the stories that we remember, it's through stories that we evolve as a people. And as you were just speaking to Cecile about developing radical empathy, I was thinking that imagination is at the heart of that, but so is storytelling and how we can connect to one another through our shared humanity and through these shared stories. So I think it's, I hope we can figure out how to do both and because we're gonna need both 
to move forward in the ways that we need to move forward if we're going to make it through this pandemic in a in a more healthful and um, and, and uh, productive way. I, I want to ask you a little bit about that sort of moving forward um, concern and. Uh, this disaster is nowhere near over by any means. September 11th has been a lot on my mind. Uh, I guess it always is, but but one of the things that was really important um, in the early months after were the many different groups who rose up, family groups, um, first responder families, um, particular business, you know, the um, different, you know, people who'd worked in, in one office who came together and formed a group, whatever it may be. Um, and most of those lasted a short period of time. A couple of them have persisted on to today. And I'm so impressed right now, um, marked by COVID, faces of COVID, COVID survivors for change. As we have often seen in the United States and in other countries, there is this great capacity to form support networks, but I worry about their stamina. I worry about what they may need to also be influential. I've seen things in this disaster that I didn't think I was gonna see at such a scale, the denial of the disease, the uh, re-victimization of families uh, the kind of things that used to be very fringy in America are now becoming much more central. So I think that there's a broader sense of support. This is what I'm coming to a question for you is what are some of your ideas about how we can provide? I think this also ties into what Cecile was talking about, kind of a radical empathy approach. How do we create and sustain a sort of broader network that allows these groups to lead us at this time? Because I think they must, they need to if we're going to get through this? Mm, what a, that is a great question, Scott. And I think one of the things that you're doing through that question that I love is uplifting those grassroots efforts and, um, but also acknowledging how hard it is to sustain them in, in terms of not just material resources, but emotional resources right. that go into that. And so one of the things that, um, gives me so much hope right now is seeing the the emergence of, of these different networks that you just named so many different networks. And I think where we can connect the dots and where we can see those networks come together and see one another, learn from one another, find those points of connection and recognize just how powerful they are, that web that they're building in each network when they start joining together and building a broader coalition and, and continue to see just how powerful they are and how much their voices do matter and how much they can support one another because the bigger that web grows and the stronger that web grows, the more we're able to catch one another when we do find ourselves depleted and feeling unable to move forward. And so I think there is just, um, so much power in those networks and so much we can do. And I think related to that, Scott, um, the hope that they are bringing to this, that the moral courage that we heard from Pamela at the beginning of this call and the ways that she described through her courage 
of speaking about this, that the ways that people came to her and acknowledged her, I think that there's this reminder that when we speak up, how strong we can be and how strong we can be collectively. I just, I think this is the moment. And um, the last thing I'll say on that, Scott, is right now, of course, one of the big things that we're hearing is this is going to be a dark winter. This is going to be a horrible winter that it's going to keep getting worse. But we actually, we don't know that for sure. Like none of us know for sure how this is going to end. And that's what those survivor groups are doing, right? Like they are giving us a different vision that there may be another way that this could go and there could be another way that this could end. And so I think that is the the power of these groups. And I think whatever we can do to uplift, support and sustain, continue to give voice in the ways that you have done. I just I say uplift right now because it we are all disaster survivors now. We are all in this. We're not all being affected equally, but this is a moment where if we can see that collect that connection and our collective responsibility to one another, we maybe could envision something different in this long arc of this pandemic. Uh, there's a lot in there, and uh, uh, this idea that we are all disaster survivors now, acknowledging, of course, the different degrees um, of impact is is a solidarity making statement and i agree with you completely that when i talk i mean with speaking with pamela speak with um others who've lost friends and family um they've got a usually got a pretty clear vision of some possible some possible better worlds to come out of this things that should have happened that didn't things that are possible that should and that's what cecile was talking about too <laughs> Um, and to not accept some inevitability. And I, I find, again, I just, I find that very, you know, I, I turn on the radio or turn on the TV and Michael Osterholm is on or Dr. Fauci is on. And like you said, I mean, they're, they have particular reasons for speaking to us about inevitabilities because that's public health messaging. What they're trying to do is get us to stay home and wear the mask and take care of each other. Um, but it does have an, uh, an impact over time, doesn't it? It does, there is this sort of inevitability to it that can make it hard to see the individual people and the possibilities coming out of it. Do you, you feel that way? Absolutely. And I'm, I mean, I'm so thankful for the messaging and I'm so thankful for our scientists who are doing everything they can to try to communicate what is coming. But I also think wrapped up in that is always as our public health experts are trying to do too is to say but if we can take these steps this is i mean that's what early on when we kept talking about bending the curve mm -hmm. mitigation what can we do with our mitigation activities to bend the curve and that was so much of our early dialogue around the pandemic and i think um as we've moved forward and the, the case numbers have just escalated so rapidly and so dramatically I, I think that there there is a certain sense of inevitability to this, and I think that the I, I think that it is a um, a very difficult time for everyone right now to figure out how do we um, how do we talk about one of the most complex uh, riskscapes that any of us have ever seen in our lifetime. How do we talk about this? How do we acknowledge the grief, the suffering, the costs? and the consequences to whatever actions we take 
with great respect and humility. And so I think that um, that balance is a, a tricky one to achieve, but I really appreciate the ways that you are always asking your guests questions. So hopefully we can push this needle a little bit further and do this a little bit better because every single day we're losing so many lives and so many people are falling ill. And so this is just such an important conversation coupled with the kind of action that you're helping to spur as well. Well, we're, I've kept you all beyond time and mm -hmm. as the nature of these kinds of discussions, I appreciate you sticking around. I wanna get one more question in and it, maybe it'll bring us back to, to Pamela's uh, great opinion piece that she um, talked about earlier in the call today. And it ties into the kinds of issues that I know you've been thinking about and writing about um, for many years now, Lori. And it, and it is her discussion of her children. And she wrote um, in that piece in October, she said, so six months later, I'm still picking up broken pieces that COVID-19 has caused my family. I look at my 11-month-old son, who was only five months old when his papa died and grieved for him uh, because he won't remember him. My two-and-a-half-year-old daughter has experienced a tragic loss and has had to start therapy to help her deal with the trauma COVID-19 has caused her. And in our discussion today, she said, and I, I thought this is really, really important, that the need of a memorial so that she has a place to ex explain the sacrifice on the importance, um, you know, of her husband's death, that it meant something at this moment in this time. Um, and so I guess my question to you is, as a person who thinks a lot about children and disaster, what's on your mind right now about the children of COVID? Mm. Well, I just thank you for sharing that excerpt from Pamela's piece, because it's, it's just the whole, every word in it has so much meaning. And, and that, um, that segment of it just... <laughs> is uh is so deeply moving and is going to be on my heart and mind for a very long time so i think one of the things that just speaking directly to pamela's writing is that she draws attention to uh the um even very very young children how much of an impact some an event like this a crisis a catastrophe like this can have on a very young child and I think that Pamela in her discussion too is really, she really began to sort of unravel the potential generational impacts of this as well. What is it gonna mean when her children take their children to that memorial that I do hope we will have one day that they can point to their papa's um, name and, and say he was my dad and he was a healthcare hero. And so I think just some of the things to really be thinking about right now are those generational impacts, the differential impacts based on age and developmental stage of children. And I also think the disparities that we started this conversation with at the beginning that children are not all situated equally in this country. There are radical disparities that mark the lives of young people in our country. And those are now playing out in this pandemic just as they do in every disaster. So I think as always keep our, our eyes like hawks on the vulnerabilities, the inequalities and the injustices, but also always look for children's strengths and capacities because children know more and can do more 
than we often give them credit for. And I think that children actually have a lot to say about this pandemic and what we could be doing differently with their education and so forth. And so I think really, again, always, always paying attention to children's vulnerabilities, but also their capacities um, and, and remembering that they're a quarter of our population, but we haven't heard a lot from them in this pandemic, even though it has upended all of their lives and their educational careers as well. I think this is, that's where we should leave it for today. Uh, and, uh, and so many discussions I've had with people this year, we're turning towards children, even very young children and teenagers, uh, my students, your students, uh, who are telling us um, really important things about how they're making sense of this world, what's broken about it and how they want to fix it and their impatience, which is absolutely crucial right now. So let's leave it at that for today. Lori, thanks so much for coming on again. You're a COVID calls regular at this point, and I hope we can have you back sometime soon. Yes, December 8th, I hope to talk about the 1000 letters. So I can't wait. So thank you. That's great. Um, I just want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time, except for tomorrow and Friday when we will not be on. We will be back on Monday to continue the discussion. And I really want to thank my other guests for today, uh, Lori Peek, Cecile Sterenberger, Rafe Offer, and Pamela Addison for sharing stories and talking with us about the importance of remembering people in all of this. And so I want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving and stay healthy, and we will see you all on Monday. Thanks.